This week, Puerto Rico Oversight Board enters planned support agreement with certain GEO and PBA bondholders. Aurelius' proposal to Frontier Communications contemplates out-of-court restructuring. Legacy Reserves files for Chapter 11. PG&E reaches $1 billion settlement. More on all of this and, as always, we'll provide further updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Alex Brosman. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later in the episode, Kyle Wusu, team leader of Reorg Latin America, and Brandon Liu, corporate credit analyst, will be discussing Odebrecht's recent filing, Oro Negro's ongoing bankruptcy, and the YPF Peterson litigation. It's Sunday, June 23rd. Legacy Reserves filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy relief on Tuesday in the Southern District of Texas. Legacy had reached an amended global restructuring agreement with stakeholders on June 13th. According to the first aid declaration, as of the petition date, the current RSA is supported by required holders under the prepetition RBL, 100% of prepetition second lien term lenders, and 55% of note holders. The RSA contemplates a $350 million dip consisting of $100 million of new money combined with a partial refinancing totaling $250 million of the prepetition reserve-based loan. Under the RSA, the debtors would also pursue a $256.3 million rights offering split between the second lien lenders and note holders, as well as full equitization of the second lien loan and notes. At exit, the dip and remaining prepetition RBL would be refinanced with an ex- exit credit facility of at least $500 million in the form of an RBL and an undisclosed amount of term loans. GSO is serving as plan sponsor and would backstop $200 million of the rights, including all of the second lien portion and part of the note holder portion. CEO Westcott explained that if there is a quote note holder termination under the current RSA, the current RSA would remain in effect without the supporting note holders and the debtors will pursue their financial reorganization pursuant to the terms of the restructuring term sheet associated with the initial RSA. At the first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isker initially told debtors that there are a number of things in the dip that are problematic to him, and the judge stated that it would make more sense for the debtors to seek an interim dip for a couple of weeks so that there will be more notice and opportunity for the parties to object. However, after the debtors and the RSA parties alleviated the judge's concerns by renegotiating the problematic terms in the motion, the judge granted the motion and entered an order on an interim basis subject to the modifications. Before I move to Frontier, I wanted to welcome Raksha and introduce our listeners to one half of the production team. Along with Jim, Raksha every week sits behind the controls, making all of us sound a whole lot better. Welcome, Raksha. Thank you. With that, let's return. On Wednesday, Aurelius sent a letter to Frontier's board of directors, which was shared with Reorg, calling on the board to pursue a, quote, out-of-court exchange and tender offer for the bonds maturing in 2022 and 2023, and a majority of the CTF bonds due in 2025. Specifically, 
Aurelius proposes that $3.5 billion of both CTF and non-CTF bonds maturing in 2022 and 2023 and 51% of CTF bonds due in 2025 receive a combination of secured debt and cash at a value 10% above the present market price. According to Aurelius, it owns, quote, a substantial amount of Frontier's non-CTF unsecured bonds due 2022 and 2023 is a shareholder and has a long position on Frontier's credit through credit default swaps. Likely responding to recent press reports to the contrary, the letter further adds that Aurelius sees, quote, no defensible basis for the company to go into Chapter 11 or attempt a so-called comprehensive restructuring, which would swiftly result in the same without first attempting the exchange tender offer recommendation. Aurelius asserts that Frontier's situation, quote, bears no resemblance to Windstream and describes reference to the Windstream situation as a, quote, red herring, and that it should not play a role in the company's decision regarding its capital structure. Sources also told Reorg that advisors to the company's bondholder groups re-engaged in discussions with Frontier's advisors, Evercore and Kirkland and Ellis, following the May 29th asset sale announcement and the appointment of three new board members, in addition to Sheldon Bruja's appointment as permanent CFO. None of the advisors are restricted yet, the sources added. Certain of the bondholder groups expect the new board members will participate in multiple board meetings before the company is prepared to restrict the advisors. According to a statement and press release, PG&E reached a billion-dollar settlement this week with 18 public entities for, quote, taxpayer losses suffered as a result of the 2015 Butte Fire, the 2017 North Bay Fires, and the 2018 Camp Fire. As detailed in an associated 8K, the settlement includes, among other payments, a $415 million for the 2017 Northern California Wildfire Public Entities, a $270 million for the Town of Paradise, and a $252 million for Butte County. In addition, the settlement, which is subject to plan confirmation, includes a clause providing that, upon the supporting public entities voting for the plan, the debtors would create a $10 million fund to be used by the supporting entities in connection with the defense or resolution of claims against the public entities by third parties relating to the wildfires. In a statement to Reorg, PG&E described the settlement as a, quote, demonstration of our willingness to work collaboratively with stakeholders to achieve mutually acceptable resolutions. Meanwhile, the debtors in the UCC continue to object to the Jan 31, 2020 bar date proposed by the Official Tort Claims Committee, or TCC, with both groups preferring the debtors' proposed October 21, 2019 fire claims bar date. On Wednesday evening, the debtors filed an omnibus reply to the TCC's bar date motion, arguing that their own claims bar date would provide, quote, more than adequate notice, and describing the TCC's plan as, quote, wasteful, duplicative, resulting in, quote, further delays to creditor distributions. The UCC also filed an objection to the motion, saying that it was, quote, bewildered by the TCC's recent request to push the bar date to next year given that the latter's repeated emphasis that time is of the essence. A hearing on the bar date-related motions is scheduled for June 26th. 
Separately, the debtors continued to push to dismiss the campfire class action, plaintiff's adversary complaint, filing a reply Wednesday night in support of their motion for dismissal in which they argue that, quote, allowing this adversary proceeding to continue would undermine the purpose of the automatic stay and delay efforts by debtors, the TCC, and other interested parties to address wildfire claims in an orderly and efficient process as contemplated by Chapter 11. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, early in the week, the Permisa Oversight Board announced that it had entered into a planned support agreement with certain holders of approximately $3 billion in general obligation and PBA bonds. The agreement includes a framework for a plan of adjustment to resolve $35 billion in liabilities, including a consensual restructuring of $18 billion in constitutional debt. Such a plan would also reduce the amount of Commonwealth-related bonds outstanding to less than $12 billion, a reduction of more than 60%. According to the Oversight Board, the Commonwealth's debt service, including principal and interest over the next 30 years, would be cut by about half to $21 billion from $43 billion. Governor Ricardo Rosseo said on Tuesday that his administration will present a joint resolution that will segregate $1.4 billion from the Commonwealth's Treasury single account to restore past contributions made by public servants to individual retirement accounts under the System 2000 program and the hybrid defined contribution program that ran from 2000 through 2017. The governor explained that during this period, because of bad fiscal practices, the money went towards covering other retirement system obligations. Ruseo further added that these fiscal practices have brought the retirement system into virtual insolvency and had to enter the process of restructuring under the protection of Title III of PROMISA. In response, the PROMISA Oversight Board issued a statement acknowledging Governor Roseo's proposed resolution, but argued that the situation must be addressed as part of a comprehensive Title III plan of adjustment. As directed by the court during the June 12th omnibus hearing, the Permisa Oversight Board, as representative of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or collectively the government parties and the anticipated objectors to the PREPA RSA settlement motion, filed a supplemental status report on Tuesday laying out their respective positions. The government parties included an amended proposed order to their Rule 9019 motion, which purportedly no longer proposes to grant approval of the RSA in its entirety. Rather, the order only addressed those aspects of the RSA that fall within the necessary purview of the court in addressing a Rule 9019 motion, the government parties say. The anticipated objectors assert that they intend to object to the amended proposed order on the basis that the requested relief would violate their priority rights and prejudice, prejudice them in the context of a plan, among other things. Per the revised scheduling order entered by Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Thursday, the hearing on the 9019 motion is scheduled for September 11th. Other top stories this week were opioid lawsuit update. Special Master is set to review Teva's settlement in Oklahoma as trial moves forward against last non-settling defendant. Cities, counties seek certification of negotiation class in national opioid MDL. Unity disagrees master lease with Windstream is off-market. UCC highlights its investigation of potential estate claims against Unity. 
U.S. trustee appoints nine-member UCC in INSIST Therapeutic Chapter 11 cases. Aiken is proposed committee counsel. And here's Jim Holloway back in action with the week ahead. Well, thank you there, Alex. Welcome aboard Raksha. The ride never ends, least of all this week, which officially marks the end of the week of the week before the July 4th week. The summer doldrums loom for some, but not for the lawyers among y'all, and not this week in the least. Monday, June 24th, confirmation hearing in Hexion, which as it happens is in the market with a $450 million eight-year offering to repay the dip. Tuesday, June 25th, bidding procedures and KEIP, KERP, or maybe that's Keep Kerp, I don't know, in FTD companies. And final approval of the cash collateral motion in PHI, hearing on that. Wednesday, June 26th, the second day hearing in Bristow, long as we're speaking about helicopters. And Zohar, led by Lynn Tilton, a hearing on the sale of Denali, a Zohar portfolio company. They're being monetized as part of the global settlement in those cases. First Energy, oral arguments related to FERC's ability to become involved in the proceedings. And, well, it looks like we have earnings, too, from Pier 1 and from Rite Aid. Thursday, June 27th, second day hearing for Agerion Pharmaceuticals. Hope I said that right. And Friday, June 28th, it's the expiration of Denbury's exchange offer for its sub-notes due 2020 and 2021 and second lien notes due 2024. And that is all I have. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. Now here are Kyle and Brandon to discuss Odebrecht, Oro Negro, and the YPF Peterson litigation. Great, thank you. So I'm Brandon Liu. I'm a corporate credit analyst on the LADAM team, and today I'm here with senior distress debt analyst and LADAM team lead Kyle Owusu to discuss three LADAM distress situations. Uh, first up is Odebrecht SA, the Brazilian construction company that recently filed for judicial recovery, or RJ, uh, with about 20 to $25 billion of debt. And next is Mexican offshore driller Oro Negro, uh, the issuer of around $915 million of bonds secured by five jackups. And last but not least, we've got the YPF Peterson litigation, which has emerged back onto the scenes uh, about a month ago when the U.S. Solicitor General uh, submitted an amicus brief arguing that YPF and Argentina's cert petitions should be denied. Uh, so, so again, starting with Odebrecht, uh, Kyle, what's what's the latest with Odebrecht? Yeah, thanks. So on um, on June twenty on June seventeenth, rather sorry, um, Odebrecht announced that it filed a petition for judicial reorganization with the first bankruptcy court and judicial recovery of Sao Paulo. Um, the bankruptcy court lists around eighty billion reais of debt at Odebrecht, but if you include intercompany loans, total group debt is just under be under uh, hundred billion reais. Um, importantly, the filing excludes uh, petrochemicals company Braskem, offshore driller Akian, and engineering and construction company OEC, Odebrecht Engineering and Construction. Got it. Uh, so can you walk us through the Odebrecht uh, structure? And this is the parent company that filed, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so just taking a step back and going through the history a bit, Emil Odebrecht emigrated to southern Brazil in 1856 from Germany. His grandson, Emilio Odebrecht, founded Emilio Odebrecht 
Um, and Emilio's son, Noberto, created a company uh, that, that, that was the origins of the Odebrecht Group in 1944. In 1954, um, the original company became a corporation, Constructura Noberto Odebrecht S.A., and Odebrecht S.A., the Hold Co., was created in 1981. So Odebrecht is, invest- is invested, it's, it's essentially a portfolio of sorts that's invested in various uh, Brazilian businesses. You've got um, the offshore driller, Akian, um, the, the shipyard facility, Enciada, um, the sugar and ethanol company, Atvos. You've got real estate, defense and security, and then... Ownership stakes in in petrochemical company Braschem, which Odebrecht also ultimately owns uh, through various entities. Um, now, looking at the the box where the bondholders are, um, they were issued uh, by Odebrecht Finance Limited, so OFL. Um, Odebrecht owns um, Odebrecht SA, the parent, owns 100% of a company called ODB International Corporation, and ODB International Corporation owns. Odebrecht Finance. Um, now, importantly, the the OFL bonds, so the 2.9 roughly billion of OFL debt, is guaranteed uh, by the engineering and construction company OEC and by Constructora Noberto Odebrecht. Um, the there is an intercompany issue um, that should be that, that that could become important in the negotiations with the OEC bondholders. So, the um, the OEC presentation disclosed a net roughly 8.8 billion reais, so rough, you know, a little bit over 2 billion um, USD of a net positive intercompany balance. Um, there has also been various creditor support that has been given um, from the TOPCO to the various subsidiary entities. So the, the Odebrecht parent co-filing, so this is again distinct from um, OEC or OFL, now we're talking about the parent. Um, the Odebrecht parent co-filing um, stated that Odebrecht parent um, has invested nearly a billion, or, sorry, invested nearly a billion reais in 2018 at OEC, around 6 billion reais um, at Atvos, 30 million USD at Akian during that um, out-of-court restructuring, um, oh, 500 million reais uh, at the real estate entity, and 900 million reais at, at the shipyard facility. So you can sort of get a sense for how interconnected um, the, 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 the various entities at the structure are, a lot of intercompany claims flying back and forth. Got it. And uh, just going back, you, you mentioned Braskem, the, the petrochemicals company. Uh, what's Odebrecht linked to Braskem? Uh, does, does the parent company own it outright or is there equity dilution? No, so the, the parent company does not own it outright. So, so Odebrecht owns um, OEC, as, as we stated, and, and OEC uh, owns 100% of Constructora Noberto, um, which owns uh, a, a company called Belgravia. And Belgravia has uh, roughly 41.5% um, equity stake in a company called OSP uh, Investments. Um, and OSP owns um, a little bit over 38%, I think 38.3% of uh, Braskem, um, Braskem equity. Uh, so no, the, the, the shares are not held outright by Odebrecht. Let's say Braskem shares are sold. Uh, how does the math 
kind of work out there? Yeah. So the way um, to think about it, and, and this I think illustrates why you've got um, reportedly so many parties sort of clamoring at the gates um, to try and get at Brasscam is, you know, if you look at Brasscam's website, there's 451.7 million common shares, about 345 million preferred A shares and 500,000 preferred B shares. Um, as we said, um, the economic interest of OSP is around 38.3%, and Brasscam trades um, at around uh, 35.97 reais. Um, and so that translates to just under, say, 11 billion reais of value, or around you know 2.9 billion if you use current exchange rates. Um, and the September 2018 Odebrecht presentation disclosed that there are six liens over the Brasscam shares and that the shares guarantee around 13 billion reais of debt. Now, it's the, the, you could make the counter argument that, the, that I'm looking at the Brasscam stock value um, post the disclosure about uh, the, the the regulatory holdup um, and you know post the disclosure about the Lyondell talks breaking up um, Lyondell was in reportedly in talks to purchase the shares from Odebrecht so you could argue that the the value is a bit depressed but nevertheless um, you know just looking at where the equity trades versus um, the six liens over the shares um, and then also taking into account that OSP only owns 38.3% of Brasscam and that Belgravia only owns 41.5% of OSP, you can start to see why once you get once the value goes all the way up to um, the OEC level, it gets a little dicey for bondholders. Got it. That's that's interesting. Um, so has the has the RJ been accepted? Yes, the the RJ was accepted uh, by the court, uh, and Alvarez and Marcel was appointed as the administrator. Odebrecht has uh, sixty days to present the plan, so that's roughly sixty days from from you know, June seventeenth, I think, or June eighteenth, um, and. Um, and then there's, sorry, there's a 180 day, uh, stay, um, that, 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 that kicks in to protect the company. Um, the advisors, uh, on the financial end, you've got RK partners and the legal advisor is E Munoz. And can you kind of talk about just some of the events of, sorry, events that led up to the filing? Yeah. So, so the petition, um, said that the obligations that are guaranteed by shares of entities, including Brascam and Akian include automatic acceleration clauses in the case of an, of, um, a restructuring or an RJ filing, um, by ODB OSP, um, or, or Atvos. Um, and the, the petition warned that, the main assets of the group could be transferred to the seven main banks in a question of hours. Um, the petition also added that the main financial creditors of Odebrecht parent um, um, and its app and the RJ applicants and Atvos, which had its RJ accepted last month, are uh, BNDS, Banco do Brasil, Caixa. Uh, Bradesco and Itaú, uh, and so I think just sort of reading between the lines, and 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 also some you know reading what what's been reported out there, it looks like the banks in in various forms uh, put pressure on the company, um, either by trying to accelerate on on assets or threatening to accelerate on assets. Um, primarily, uh, it sounds like. 
um, the the there there has been a fight behind the scenes over um, brass chem specifically, and so I think that you know put, putting all that together, I think the company just fe- just felt pressure from um, its bank lenders specifically, um, and certainly the fact that you know OEC has to be restructured didn't help, and uh, the brass chem fo- talks falling apart. Uh, didn't help either, and I think you know it was just an amalgamation of events that led to the filing eventually. With with respect to the RJ, what are the four classes in an RJ, and what percentage approval is is needed? So you've got um, the 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 first class with labor, um, so the labor creditors, uh, secured lenders, unsecured lenders, and small business loans. Um, the plan must be approved by a majority of creditors of each class taking into consideration uh, only those present. Um, And under the law, there is a period of up to one year from ratification uh, to settle um, labor debt. Okay, so so Odebrecht Finance, the bond issuer, is an Odebrecht SA subsidiary. Uh, Is Odebrecht Finance a limited part of the RJ? Yes, so uh, while OEC, um, the guarantor, is not part of the filing, OFL was included. And aren't there bondholder negotiations going on with the Odebrecht finance bonds? Uh, What happens with that now that Odebrecht has filed and uh, Odebrecht finance is part of the filing? So OEC uh, said in a notice to investors that discussions with bondholders continue and that the ad hoc group is not interested in enforcing non-negotiated debt. And um, so, so what assets can Odebrecht use to its advantage in these negotiations? So in, in, in the decision in, on the debtor's petition, uh, the judge said that um, ODBR's shares um, in Brascam, Akian, and Atvos have a high potential uh, for negotiation in the market and added that including those assets in negotiations could allow for capital injections and you know, I think that 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 basically spells it out in terms of what um, ODBR can 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 potentially use as 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 to its advantage. Um, to what extent, you know, that that to what extent bondholders and potential investors see value in those assets, I think, um, is hard to tell here. I mean, you know, Akian just recently went through a restructuring. Um, it's an offshore drilling company. Uh, the offshore drilling sector um, has improved a bit, but it's certainly by no means, um, um, you know, robust. Um, Atvos is currently uh, going through a restructuring, and uh, you know, Brascam. Um, a, it looks like there's 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 a fight over those shares, and 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 I guess more importantly, so maybe I should have reversed the order, but it doesn't seem like uh, it, those shares are very easy to sell right now. I mean, the talks fell apart. Um, and so, um, I think that, yes, those are the, the, if you look at the assets within the group, those are probably the three that, that become sort of obvious in terms of what you can use. But, um, I don't mean to suggest by any means that there's, there's, uh, that I'm, that I think there's a ton of value in those assets or anything. Got it. So great. That's, that's a good, uh, Wrap on Odebrecht. Uh, there definitely, you know, between Brascam, Atvos, Odebrecht, there's there's a definitely a lot going on. There there should be, um, you know, some a lot a lot more information to come out in the, the next few weeks. I'd I'd imagine. Uh, so turning to Oro Negro, uh, Oro Negro's nine hundred sixteen million dollar seven and a half percent twenty nineteens were were quoted about a month ago at forty one, uh, up from the mid thirties. Uh, what what was the catalyst there? So 
The the Mexico City Second District Civil Court ordered Oronegro's five jack-up rigs to be delivered to the bondholder-controlled Singapore rig-owning entities, um, and even went as far as to add that if 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 Oronegro parent Perforadora failed to comply with the order, that public force would be used um, to enforce the order, and so. Essentially, the bonds popped because um, you had a, a court order um, sort of handing over the rigs, handing over control of the rigs to the creditors. Got it. So so the creditors seized the rigs. Uh, was, was there any response from Oro Negro CEO, uh, Gonza- uh, who's Gonzalo Gilwhite? Yeah. So on, on June 7th, um, acting personally and as Integradora and Perforadora's foreign representative, Gilwhite filed a billion-dollar-plus complaint against the ad hoc bondholder group Oro Negro Singapore rig-owning entities, Deutsche Bank Mexico, investment manager FinTech Advisory, and offshore driller Seadrill. The complaint is for tortious interference and alleges that the bondholder group colluded with the Mexican government and Pemex to take over Oro Negro's jackups. And prefer... Perforadora, from from what I understand, has very little cash. Can can Gil White afford to drag this out? Um, so the debtor has actually sought court approval on June seventh to enter into a financing agreement. Um, the assignee is CM Squared O N L L C, and under the agreement, CM Squared is going to pay a redacted amount in return for a participation interest in a portion of any litigation proceeds from the claims, causes of action, um, et cetera, et cetera, in connection or in any way relating to these Chapter 15 proceedings, including but not limited to the the SDNY complaint filed that was seeking over a billion damages. So, I mean, the the, the short answer is that um, it looks like the 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 company has uh, litigation financing. And in terms of the rigs, what are the, what are the economic prospects uh, in ter- in terms of you know just in, in the market and uh, what's the best? I guess so. What's the best? Also, what's the best outcome for creditors? So I think um, you know to to the first question. Um, People that we, it seems like the the consensus opinion is that um, there's been a a, a steady uptick, um, or at least a sort of steadying in 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 in, in her. Uh, it seems like jackups values or jackup day rates have found a bit of a floor and are starting to sl- improve, albeit slightly. Um, you know, the past couple of day rates that I'm looking at looks like um, you know fixtures for. A uh, hundred thousand for two hundred days, um, but on the other hand, there, there I see a couple for like seventy-five thousand um, for seven hundred thirty-one days, um, and uh, you know that's still less than I think I, I believe still less than uh, the amended uh, Oro Negro day rate um, of one hundred five thousand that was being proposed, and and so. I think you know you're not seeing day rates that are amazing, but you are seeing um, at least contracts get done. Um, and you're so I think I think the best outcome for for creditors um, would be to put the rigs to work at at a day rate that allows them to return um, to earn sorry capital in excess of you know the the cost. Um, and so if you can put these rigs back to work at, at day rates of, of over a hundred thousand and, and the sort of operating costs are around 50,000 a day, I think that that, that would be a pretty good outcome um, for the creditors given 
where where it seems like they per especially given where it seems like they purchased the bonds um you know and i think alternatively another decent outcome would be a sale um to a strategic buyer um so a data one data point um that that uh is the recent um purchase um of the kfels super b uh jack up it's a, this is a new build um it's it's for around 120 million um by by uh bore um bore drilling which is an active has been sorry an active purchaser um of jack up rigs um so that you know just looking at that 120 million um you have five rigs and sort of doing the math there again um considering where uh the bondholders likely purchased i think um, the, there, there were court documents saying that the, that 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 the the ad hoc group, um, you know, bought the shares around forty five cents to sixty cents, and so I think you know, assuming that's that's sort of the levels, then yeah, I think that those would be um, you know sort of palatable outcomes certainly for for bondholders either putting the rigs back to work or selling them in the market. Great. So, so just what's the status of Oro Negro's bankruptcy proceedings in Mexico? So the proceedings moved into the liquidation phase on June 14th, and Fernando Camarena accepted his position as liquidator on June 18th. The process takes about one to one and a half months. Um, the concurso mercantile judge will set a date for um, the liquidator um, to assume debtor's management. Um, the liquidation order uh, said, uh, interestingly, uh, that the, the debtor's current managers have to continue to manage and conserve the assets and affairs in a diligent manner until uh, the liquidator assumes management and pointed out that the only at this point, the only meaningful assets that the debtors have are their litigation claims against third parties. And so now um, I'm going to uh, switch and move to the role of moderator, and I'll be asking you the questions. Um, so let's turn um, to uh, YPF Peterson, uh, sticking with the theme of litigation. Um, can you just give us a brief overview of the situation and the, just the history behind the um, nationalization or renationalization, I should say, of YPF's shares? Yeah, sure. So, uh, bankrupt Spanish company Peterson Energia owned just over a million shares of YPF in 2012 before the Argentine government renationalized the company by taking majority ownership, uh, 51% specifically, from another Spanish company, Repsol. Uh, Peterson, in this case, is arguing that the Argentine government breached provisions in YPF's bylaws that were designed to induce investors to purchase YPF's shares and provide a compensated exit via a tender offering to all shareholders in the event that 20% or more of the shares uh, changed ownership hands. Uh, so in, in a matter of months you know in in 2012 while the expropriation was in process ypf shares fell from about forty dollars to about twenty dollars uh keep in mind peterson energia owned about 100 million shares um and argentina also allegedly engaged in an intentional campaign to devalue the shares prior to taking control and Argentina also canceled a scheduled dividend payment from YPF. So Peterson is basically looking to enforce the contractual bylaws that 
Argentina breached and argues that it, it should be compensated for the value of the shares that the company held prior to expropriation talks. Okay, great. And are any of the other shareholders that were involved at the time seeking damages? Yeah, so also defunct hedge fund Eaton Park, uh, which shut down in 2017, is also involved, although they own just about 3% of YPF shares at the time. Um, the hedge fund acquired nearly 12, 12, mil, 12 million shares of YPF between 2010 and 2012 for about $450 million. And are there any advisors involved at this point? Yes. So Burford Capital is one known advisor uh, and and is is acting as an advisor um, to both Eaton Park and Peterson. Got it. So what what exactly are, are, what damages are being sought here? So the exact amount has not been disclosed, but just doing some back of the envelope math. uh, So like I said, Peterson had about 100 million shares originally valued at close to $40 a share uh, at the time and in 2012 before expropriation talks began and they fell to about $20 a share. So that's about a $2 billion loss. Uh, Also, about a year ago, Burford agreed to take a bigger role in the Eaton Park matter, uh, comparable to its role in the Peterson claim. And at the, about a year ago, it made a $21 million advance payment to Eaton Park in exchange for the right to receive an additional 70% of Eaton Park's proceeds from this litigation. Um, and in order to hold its exposure to the YPF claims relatively constant, it decided to finance its its payment to Eaton Park by selling some further interest in the Peterson entitlement, and it sold um, three, 3.75% of its Peter, Peterson entitlement for an effective cash price of 30 million. So that implies a valuation of about $800 million. Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Those are all helpful data points in trying to ascertain damages. Although I know it's always difficult. Um, have you, have, have there been any settlements, uh, related to this case? So the only settlement that is known is, uh, Repsol, which was the majority shareholder at the time of the expropriation, and they agreed to a $5 billion settlement in 2014, which actually was just about half of what Repsol was originally commanding. The litigation has recently resurfaced um, now that you have an amicus brief um, that was submitted um, urging denial of, of, of YPF in Argentina's um, petitions for certiorari, certiorari. Um, can you just give us an update on the uh, the current status of the dispute? Sure. So as you mentioned, Argentina and YPF had filed cert petitions. And about a month ago, on May 21st, the Solicitor General submitted an amicus brief for the U.S. arguing that the petitions should be denied. Uh, the premise of the argument was that the Court of Appeals correctly ruled that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act's uh, commercial activity exception applies to this dispute. And specifically, the Solicitor General argued that Argentina acted as a private player in the expropriation of YPF shares, and the, the tender offer requirement of the bylaws applies to any party who's acquires a sufficiently large stake in the company and such a failure to abide by the bylaws does not become any less commercial merely because of Argentina's status as a sovereign. And a couple weeks later, YPF and Argentina argued in 
a supplemental brief that their cert petitions should be granted because Argentina did not act like a private party, but rather took a series of actions that were were reserved exclusively for the sovereign, uh, which is an important distinction for the purposes of the commercial activity exception. Great. So where does the where do we go from here? So the like I said, the most recent filing was the supplemental brief filed by YPF and Argentina, arguing that their cert petitions should be granted after the Solicitor General urged for the denial. So from here, we're kind of just waiting to see if the case will actually be heard by the Supreme Court or if it will be sent back down uh, to be ruled by the dis- uh, to be ruled on by the district court. Great, thank you very much. So no shortage of action in LATAM. We've we had the uh, Odebrecht filing, the biggest filing ever in in Brazil. Um, we have um, Oro Negro, which is still ongoing, and we have YPF. We'll be looking for what the plan looks like at Odebrecht Parent Co. and uh, OFL. Um, and in Oro Negro, we'll see uh, what the latest is or what how the uh, saga resolves itself with the creditors and the jackups. And with YPF, we will see if the case ends up going um, to the Supreme Court level. Thank you very much to all of our listeners, and take care. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of Reorg podcasts on our site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. I'm Raksha Manjana, and this has been The Week in Reorg.